detective, throw me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Pal's Care Board, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. No words. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy, the world where science fiction, fantasy, and horror collide. I am your host, Nathan Bartleball, and I'm also joined with my co-host, Bill Van Vagel. Bill, how are you tonight? I am doing awesome. It's a great day today, and I can't wait to talk to our guest because we have questions ready. We want his intellect. We want his insight. We want to see what he brings to the table. I'm a little surprised you didn't say something creepier, like I, we want his brain or something. But, <laughs> I can do uh, that too. <laughs> so, yeah, great. So we're kind of in full swing to our October series here. We've already had a couple episodes, and I'm really excited about this one. Uh, Phantom Galaxy from the inception, I always intended to sort of talk about movies and books and several other things. Because movies were kind of primarily my wheelhouse, it became mostly movies all the time. But I'm really excited because tonight we're going to talk primarily about uh, stories, about stories surrounding uh october and halloween and just horror fiction and darker fiction in general and uh various subgenres within that i'm sure we'll end up talking a little bit of weird fiction and ghost stories and things like that uh to do that we brought in a guest i'm really excited for this is victor rodriguez and he's sort of he's in the horror community uh he also shows up a lot on land of the creeps as vicious victor uh i believe he's been on horror movie podcasts and a couple other places he's also um an author and he's written several stories published in different places and he has at least one short story collection out right now that you can purchase it's called the sound of fear so we're going to talk about that tonight and victor's brought his own list of his favorite spooky stories for the holidays and bill and i have pulled a couple uh couple as well and we'll talk about those but before we do any of that i'm going to turn it over to victor and just let him introduce himself and talk a little bit about his writing hey thanks nathan it's really good to be here with you guys thank you very much for uh, for the invitation i really appreciate it and, um, yeah, I love this podcast. Uh, and you guys are what about, uh, 63, 64 episodes in? We're, it's a, that's a, that's a tricky thing. We're kind of like nine episodes in. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not, I, I'm not 63 in. This is sort of its second life, but Ooh. it's a crazy thing. But there was so much content in the other episodes, you know, let's, let's leave it up. But so, uh, it's kind of, um, it depends on which birth date you're going by. It was reborn recently. <laughs> But thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thanks. Oh, yeah. No, I'm super thrilled to be here. Um, yeah. Uh, thanks again. Uh, right. So long story short, uh, I'm, uh, ar- I'm in artist management by day. I manage a, an L.A.-based composer for uh, video games, TV, and film. And um, at night, I write horror fiction. And um, yeah, I've written a 
gang of short stories. Uh, most of them have been, been published, and um, my collection is out, uh, like you said, that came out last year, and um, working on another one and a novel and a couple of other interesting ideas. So, um, yeah, uh, I am I am here. Uh, we are so happy for you to be here. Uh, and I don't know if you want to take a minute. Can you talk about any of the uh, the video games or any of the movies that you've worked on over the years in regards to the, uh, I guess it's primarily in the field of audio. And I mention that because your your short story collection is tied in a lot to that. And in, in, I think in reading it, some of your experiences. So uh, I didn't know if you want to take a moment. Is anything you can say or want to say about that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my first career was as a, uh, as an audio director and a music supervisor in Hollywood. And, um, I, uh, I worked on a TV show. I don't know if you guys may remember, uh, called the wonder years in the Never late eighties. <laughs> what happened to all the music? <laughs> shocking. Shocking. Who is this Winnie chick? <laughs> uh, um, yeah, the music, uh, was a bit of a licensing issue and all that stuff was at least partially my fault. So, um, I may have held that, held that, that series up from getting syndication for a few years. Um, and, uh, that was quite a learning experience. Um, the first movie I ever worked on was Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Uh, and um, right after that, I worked on uh, Heathers and uh, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and um, and a bunch of other slightly lesser known movies that were fun to work on. And um, then uh, I worked in music for a while uh, at BMG Music Publishing. That's where I, I had a hand on the uh, Crow soundtrack. Uh, I, I was uh, the um, the Cure were one of our bands at that music publisher, and I worked with them to come up with that song "Burn" for the uh, transformation scene in the film. Um, and then I went to video games. Uh, I did Grand Theft Auto Vice City. And, um, what, what else did I do? Saints Row and, uh, God of War, the original 2005 one and, um, uh, countless others. But, uh, but yeah, uh, things went, went great for a while. Then, uh, the company where I was head of audio, uh, went under and I couldn't really find an equivalent gig. So, uh, the wife and I kind of, uh, downsized and moved ourselves up to the Pacific Northwest and we bought the strange high house in the mist, which I am now the caretaker of. <laughs> and that's where we live. I do manage a, um, a composer, uh, that is based in Los Angeles and uh, we've been lucky enough to work through the coronavirus crisis, uh, which is still, still on as we record this, um, and, uh, stay afloat. So, you know, um, it's, I guess it's going pretty well. And, uh, the writing has been going well since, since I, uh, moved up here. So there you go. Very cool. And, uh, before we, uh, go any further with that, I do have a quite, it's funny cause listing your movies there and you mentioned Hellraiser too. And of course that would be the one I think most people would ask about. I'm going to ask about what it was like to work on Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, <laughs> which has always been sort of a, a guilty pleasure, or maybe just a pleasure uh, to watch. And what was what was that experience like? Did you get to interact at all with Cassandra uh, Peterson? Yes, um, yeah, I got to meet Cassandra and um, most of the crew. It was um, it was great. It was great. I mean, she was awesome, uh, and it was a huge blast for me because I grew up watching Elvira on Movie Macabre. So 
that's what I remember too. Obviously I told her that. And, um, yeah, I mean, she was probably, probably still is, uh, my favorite horror host. You know, I, I sort of learned about the, the cheeky comedy that you can get from analyzing schlocky movies, uh, from her. So I think she's, she, she had a really, uh, intoxicating combination of good looks and a sense of humor. <laughs> so. So when you say you worked on these movies, what does that entail? What exactly kind of thing were you responsible for? Uh, well, at New World Pictures, where we did Elvira and Hellbound, um, I was an assistant to the director of music. So basically what I did was I uh, penned contracts and uh, you know music licenses, that sort of stuff. I wasn't really involved in too many of the creative decisions uh, over there. Uh, that would have been the domain of my boss. But um, it was a great place to work. It didn't pay much, but uh, everything I learned about music business affairs, working with composers, and um, great places to eat in Los Angeles, I learned at that job. So there you go. So in New World Pictures, when you came in, was that after or before House 2, the second story? Uh, it was after. It was, it was okay, after so- Corman had sold it, yeah. It's really cool the uh, the video game work later, and that's a, a lot of really awesome and obviously recognizable titles there. Uh, what in that field before you kind of moved away from that a little bit, Victor? Did you have a favorite or a, a, a really fulfilling piece of, of of work that you contributed to any of those games that you specifically remember or that sort of st- stands out to you as sort of hey, I'm really proud of this. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I cleared all the music for uh, GTA Vice City, and that was a monumental task that unfortunately I had to do while I was doing the rest of my job at uh, at Sony Music. So uh, I'm very proud of, of having pulled that off um, with, as far as I know, no mistakes. And um, that's the only project I've ever worked on that was commented on when i was in europe i was on europe on business and some french guy was hanging out with us and he was like so what did you do and i was like gta vice city he's like oh that's my favorite game and um i was like wow i made it i'm big in france (laughs) (laughs) and 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 can i assume it's safe to say that all your relatives under the age of 30 got video games for christmas yeah yep video games were a popular gift back then yep (laughs) right (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And how, I was going to say, and how are you transitioning from that work to working with a composer one-on-one? How was how is there differences? How are there similarities? Well, uh, you know, working with uh, with a composer is that's by far the favorite thing uh, that I used to do in my old life. Um, that's sort of the, the creative work where you're you know giving comments to music cues, making them sound better. And uh, also for my client, obviously, I'm so familiar with uh, composer contracts and stuff like that. I help her with all that stuff. And since I'm also a writer, I do her press releases and, um, you know, uh, liner notes and that kind of stuff, too. So uh, it's uh, it's a fun job. And um, there's still a little bit of, you know, the agent side of things, which is looking for new gigs. But that's part of the deal. You have to um, you have to look for work to get work to get paid. So. That's uh, <laughs> that's part of the gig too. So, would you say it's a labor of love, or it's just labor? Absolutely, no. I I I love music and uh, composers. I you know I've tried to work with as many of them as possible through throughout my life, 
And I thought I was going to go into music. I thought I was going to be a player in um, in college. I majored in music for a short time, uh, but I just didn't have the talent to compete with people that were sort of moving up in, in the ranks there. So it was at that point where I decided, uh, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll just be a guy who helps musicians do deals. And uh, eventually, I, I am that guy. Cool. And, and Victor, thanks for taking some time to, to humor us on that. But I did want to ask a couple questions about that because as we transition to talking about writing and inspirations for writing, as I said, uh, one of the unique things I think about The Sound of Fear, the collection of stories that you've released uh, and I'm not sure when they were all written and how they all came to be, but as you point out, even your foreword to that book, they all revolve around some element of of sound, of of hearing, and a lot of times of music and uh, how all of that integrates and inter and we interpret it as people. And there's several stories in there where you, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, I love it when you have someone who uh, knows. A topic and a job very well but then it also translates it not just into hey clearly this person's worked this job but they understand how it affects you and there's a couple of stories there that involve the the video game sort of um you know making sure the mm-hmm. music is ready for the video games and and there's a couple of those stories that get a little dark and i was thinking i wonder <laughs> wonder how much of this uh you can tell that there's a lot that victor has some personal experience here and then reading some of it you almost feel that kind of awkward anxiety of like i know a lot of the feelings he's talking about not because i'm in the music industry but that that element of people making decisions that are going to take something special sort of away from you and so uh i'm glad that you kind of gave us some of that background because i think you really successfully bring a lot of that stuff into your stories and even if we didn't have what you just told us you kind of feel that the person writing these stories has some some real experience here and is bringing experience into their story. So uh, what made you or what kind of when did the switch flip that made you decide, hey, I really I really want to write or I think I can do this. I can sort of make this happen. Oh, you know, I always loved the idea of being a writer. Um, You know, I just really wanted to make money more. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I got into music business affairs. Cause I was like, you know, if I learn this stuff, I'll probably never need a job. And for a while, for a long while, that was true. Um, but I always love to read. Uh, you know, I, I, I started reading Stephen King when I was in grade school and, um, you know, quickly got into HP Lovecraft and, uh, Edgar Allan Poe after that. And, um, you know, I always idolized those guys. And, um, you know, when I moved up here and I had some time after we, we bought the strange high house, I was like, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. And, um, I, I just, I started writing a novel and it's, it's still, (laughs) it's still in progress, but halfway through it, I, um, I was like, you know what, I'm going to write something I can finish. Um, you know, soon. So I wrote a short story and that short story was smoke, which is the first, the first story in, in my collection. Um, and, uh, so I thought I would just write something simple and man, the, the, the feeling from finishing something to the point that it's readable is incredible. Like it is, it is an emotional triumph. Um, and getting it published is another triumph. So there is a huge emotional, uh, reward system in in writing. Uh, as anyone listening to this that has you know published stories can attest. I mean, it it feels great 
Sadly, it's not a really well-paid field. Um, it probably should be, um, especially with some of the, the writers we're going to talk about today. But, um, you know, it uh, it's very fulfilling. And, um, and yeah, back to your point, uh, everything. <laughs> I mean, if you talk to any writer, I mean, writers will use anything they know, anything, anyone you know, that will give them inspiration to, to round out their story. Um, so yeah, I, I would like to say everything in sound of fear is true. Not in that it actually happened that way, but it's emotionally true. There, those are things that either happened to me or happened to people I cared about at some point in our lives. So I, I tried to be as honest as I could with those stories. That's awesome. I, I, I kind of wanted to ask, you know, you said you had a routine. You come home from work and then you go to write. Is Do you write when you feel inspired to write? Or is it a routine thing from 7 till 10, I'm going to be writing? Yeah, I, I write when I can. So uh, I don't treat it like a hard and fast job, but I can't afford to. Um, you know, I have to run my management business when it's needed. And I write in the spaces in between. So that's that's the way I... Until I become, uh, uh, you know, a, a best-selling author with uh, with tons of book deals or everything optioned by Hollywood, <laughs> that's going to be the way it stays. Can, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, it's fine. I if I if I never uh, am able to pay the maintenance fees on the Strange High House with my writing solely. <laughs> Uh, I'll still be happy because um, it's it's just the journey of writing stuff is is exciting in itself. And the community, as you guys know, is awesome. Yeah. And I, I wanted to say something uh, in regards to the story. So Smoke was the first one. And then you had that. Was that published in a publication somewhere before it made its way into the anthology? Uh, yeah, I think it was published in 2016 um, in a Halloween anthology called Black Candy. Okay, very cool. And that's the first, it's the first story in, in the anthology. It was the first of, of your work that I'd read. And I really liked it a lot. It's probably one of my favorite stories in that collection. And I love, and, and the story sort of, uh, it, it's a A to B, like person trying to move from one place to the next place, right? They're trying, a person trying to get to a family member and trying to overcome this personal obstacle of fear. And then as it relates to the sound issue, and if you want to talk about that a little bit, we can, but this person trying to navigate a scenario where all of the sounds are real obstacles to them. And the way you created that landscape, I thought it was, it's it's always interesting when you're picking up someone's work you've never read for the first time, and the first thing is you're like, when is it going to sort of capture me? And I think, Victor, honestly, it kind of captured me right off the bat because of the way in which you uh, you so clearly and carefully are describing what a person will feel. I don't think many of those stories are any of them uh, written in the first person, but reading a lot of them, I felt like they were, but I don't know that any of them are. I, I get that feeling because you're so much inside the character's head. That's what I really appreciate, particularly about that, that first story. Yeah. Um, I, uh, this is embarrassing, but I don't actually remember myself if any of the stories in that book are, are in, well, I think the, um, Kingdom by the Sea is is a first person. Yes, you are right. Yes, yeah. Narrative, yeah, but the rest aren't right. They're third person limited, which is, um, yeah. I, I don't want to get too nerdy into uh, literary terms, <laughs> but uh, third person limited is basically what almost everybody writes in these days, which is um, it's from one character's point of view, 
and you can hear his thoughts or you can read his thoughts uh, and you can also see what he sees and hear whatever he says and what he hears other people say or experience. I, I totally get it. I was going to say, I totally get it because as a teacher, trying to teach third grade or second person, just forget about it. Oh, second person. Yeah. <laughs> I, rarely, rarely I see fiction in second person. It's a tough one. But I think it would be fair to say we've probably all read even third person limited stories where where people are still describing it as if it's a screenplay. You know, they're just describing what you're seeing and and sometimes that could be rough particularly if it's a, a someone who is a, a newer author and you realize you're just being sort of told everything, you know, every, it, it's almost like dictation. And I didn't feel that way at all with any of the stories you have. I, uh, King does have that Barker has it where they're able and and Bradbury Bradbury is a a name that came up a lot as I was reading your stories for one thing even though they all have that sound element and a lot of them do deal in the music music industry and I even like how you bring characters back you know you have a story that takes place and I'm like oh here's another character and I think this character is the same one uh Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm sure the Vikings maybe uh, maybe those aren't true experiences with your friends but again that feeling of wanting to prove yourself all of them sort of have that thing of I want to leave a lasting uh, a lasting impression. And the fact that that's the kind of overall theme, it doesn't really matter whether the story's a horror or science fiction or fantasy, and you have a little bit of everything in there. That's what reminded me of Bradbury's. He always had the human tie, and then everything else in there, uh, it's very diverse. You have things that could be like a matinee serial adventure. You know, you have the, the Viking sort of uh, battle epic. You, you've got, uh, there's some, mo- I don't want to get uh, too, I don't want to give away your book, but you've got some monsters in there, and you've got some really personal stuff i just thought it was such a great mix and every story felt of the same piece i'm i was i'm really impressed by it honestly thanks man yeah thanks i i really appreciate that um yeah it was i mean it was a lot of a lot of hard work but uh, i think most of the stories were written between 2016 and 2018 and um yeah i I just i figured why not write about sound or sonic phenomena because uh, that was my my business for a long time so i thought i might have a little bit of an edge uh, over other speculative fiction writers uh, if i kind of stuck to the stuff i i knew intimately um but uh, you know the other 50 percent of the details of stuff in that book are just things i researched so i, I just kind of used that as an anchor and and went from there um, but yeah, I, I, I really, uh, I'm, I'm really glad you liked it. Uh, yeah, the multi-genre thing is, uh, we call, we call it slipstream in, um, in the, the fiction business and, uh, much like this podcast, uh, you know, talks about science fiction, fantasy and horror. Um, you know, I try to cover those bases in that book as well. So you're kind of the, uh, John Carpenter of writers. Yeah, I, I mean, I try to. I, I mean, I've, I'm honored to be <laughs> mentioned the same <laughs> sentence of of Carpenter, but I, I was going to say I could call you Fulci. Is that any better? <laughs> yeah. That that that's a little more down to earth. <laughs> he didn't say UA Bowl. That's important. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, no, but I, I do try to. Um, Actually, you know, it's it's an interesting. It's a it's a, a really short story, but um, I when I first started writing. Uh, I met uh, Chuck Palahniuk, um, you know, the guy that wrote Fight Club. Yep. And um, he and I, I was just I was working on my first novel idea. And, and I was like, how do I kickstart my career, man? Like, you know, you've made it. So he was like, well, first of all, write something in every possible genre you can think of. And, um, you know, if they're, if they're short stories, fine. If they're novels, fine. 
and then just start sending them out. And then whatever gets the best response, that's probably what you should be writing. Um, and uh, that's exactly what I did. And uh, yes, yeah, some of those stories have gotten better responses than others. Uh, so it, it has been a gauge on like where I should follow myself in, you know, what should I, what should I write next? And the, the other thing that Chuck uh, mentioned was uh, get a peer review group, which I also did. Um, so, uh, you know, the, there are other, you know, other writers, we share our, our own stories with each other and give critique. And um, I think this is, if anybody out there listening to this is, is thinking of getting into writing or is writing, uh, man, those two things really improved my publishing output. So I got to I gotta hand it to Chuck on that one. Very cool. Do you have and what what story do you feel of the ones that you've written so far? Do you have one that you feel really resonated or you you found people really responded to really well? Um, hmm. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, it's not in my collection, but um, I, I another thing I do is uh, I do readings at a, a a group called Noir at the Bar, and um, it used to meet every quarter here in Seattle. And uh, we do live readings of our stuff. And um, there's a story uh, that I wrote about it, it's it's all with animals, but it's a crime. It's a bit of crime fiction um, where uh, a fixer in a crow flock has to figure out who murdered the alpha. Nice. Um, and uh, that has killed unlike anything else I've <laughs> I've said at the uh, at Noir at the bar. So. Uh, hopefully that'll be published early next year. We'll see. So uh, can can we anticipate a book of animal crime novels? You can kind of be the alpha male in that subsection. <laughs> yeah. uh, if this takes off uh, the way it it, uh, it caught on at Noir at the Bar, then sure, I'd be happy to write something like that. I'm always for animal solving mysteries. I love all the cat solves mystery kind of you know books out there. As a kid, I was a big yeah. fan of the Banicula series. You know, uh, I think that James oh, Howell yeah. wrote. Um, what, what's your favorite of the, do you have a favorite of the ones that are in the book? Yeah. Um, I would say my, the, the one that was most thrilling to write, uh, was probably, um, well, okay. The one, the one that, uh, that really flowed out of me the easiest, I guess, was Kill Fee, which is, I think the second story. Um, and, uh, it's, it's pretty much, uh, a lot of life experiences of mine that I, you know, crushed into one story and combined with the legend of Faust, um, which is one of my favorite uh, stories from folklore. So I'm hoping one of those elements is not part of your personal experience, but I'll, I'll <laughs> leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, no, in my in my former life, I was usually the I was on the devil side. Like I was the guy, <laughs> I was the guy contracting the composers. So, so yeah, nice. I was gonna say, well, I'm not that well read in terms of procedural type books. But the one I did read just for fun and pleasure, I remember in my early 20s, was Stephen King's On Writing. And the one thing I did take away from that book was he basically says, you know what, don't try to be too hoity-toity. Write what you know. Write what's simple in a smart way that you know people will want to listen to, basically. Is that kind of your guiding philosophy, or do you kind of veer left-right or far from that? Yeah, no, I, I think uh, you're absolutely right, Bill. Like, uh, the... the, the um the the lion's share of the stories in um in sound of fear are written in exactly that style like stripped down minimalist uh, i just tried to get my ideas across as well as i could emotionally 
Um, there are one or two experiments, like uh, there, the two fantasy stories, um, uh, Scripto Inferior and um, Echoes. Uh, I tried to get a little more fanciful with the writing to make them sound like they were of the time a little bit more uh, to to kind of uh, support what the writer might or what the reader might be uh, experiencing by by reading it. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, Scripto Inferior, uh, really quick, is is basically uh, it's written in the style of a Robert E. Howard story. You know, the guy that wrote Conan and um, you know the the uh, a bunch of horror stories and sword woman and red sonia and all that stuff um so i wanted to write something that was in that high adventure style but <laughs> wasn't sexist or racist <laughs> well congratulations he did it <laughs> i was gonna say nathan perhaps we should get him on our dragon upcoming episode <laughs> the dragon. um and i don't know if there are any dragons in in victor story there is a there there there's a monster i was happy to see a big monster at one point in one of the stories so um, uh yes one of the stories i want to ask you about you've got most of them are relatively they're not long long they're 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 within the short story you have the echoes is probably the longest i think maybe of, of yeah lengthwise but you have a couple and there's one specifically and it's really i guess it's the title is just like you would see the seconds on a on a digital clock right it's zero one and the idea that it's like the the one second on the recorder. I guess really that's what it is, right? It's a exactly a, a person at one point in the story plays something that is listed as being one second. That story is less than a is it less than a page? Or it's about a page long, maybe a page and a half. Yeah, it's a it's about a page. It's pretty impactful. It, it, that one was the one that really reminded me of Edgar Allan Poe. And I was just curious if you talk about that one because that's the one where you kind of you get into it and out of it pretty quickly. But it leaves an impression. What were sort of your inspirations for that? Because it is that kind of monologue. Uh, that that one, I guess, is also first person. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, that that is uh, that is first person. I forgot about that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's definitely uh, it's a pastiche of Poe and Lovecraft. Uh, and um, a lot of times, what I do, this a lot of writers have this problem i certainly do um where you know it's no problem coming up with ideas uh, you know you get tons and tons of ideas actually the more you write the easier it is to come up with ideas um but uh what's really tough is singling out one and say this is what i'm gonna write. like of all the ideas in my head like this is the one that is important enough for me to write right now um, so to help myself narrow it down, um, what I do is sometimes I give myself sort of writing exercises. And the, the challenge that I gave to myself on 001 was to tell a complete story in 10 sentences or less. Um, so there's a little um, fancy grammar work <laughs> in there to make it fit, but I couldn't get anything shaved off of it and still tell the stories <laughs> as succinctly as I could. So it's, um, it's pretty much accurate. And, um, and yeah, I, I actually, I read that at North bar too, and, and that was, uh, was pretty well enjoyed, but, uh, but yeah, thanks. I appreciate those comments. Talk about, because you do have a new piece of fiction that's out right now that just came out. I think you said last week, do you want to talk about that a little bit? And then we can start talking sort of about, uh, the stories that we picked and the, and the um, uh, any inspirations you've had as we go along, the stories that really inspired you. 
Oh, certainly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, last week, uh, the book On Time came out from Trans Mundane Press. And uh, I've, got a, <laughs> I've got a short story in there called A Discourse on Philosophy Between a Man and an Unexploded Atomic Bomb. And um, I would love it if uh, uh, you guys listening would pick up a copy, because I really think it's one of the best things I ever wrote. And you uh, have maintenance fees. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, the reason the title is so damn long is, is because uh, it was originally wor- uh, created as a work of flash fiction. So I thought the way I could cheat and, um, you know, sort of impart the plot without uh, accruing word count is to just put it all in the title. <laughs> you see that a lot with flash fiction, actually, now that you mentioned that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it worked. It worked. So it's, it's like a 500 word story, but, um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's really bleak. Like if, if you guys out there listening to that one, like something to read and you don't mind being depressed afterwards, <laughs> pick that book up and pick my, pick my story up. Uh, no, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of great writers that contributed to that uh, same anthology. So for for their sake, I would uh, urge you to pick it up as well. So it's it's on time from Transmundane Press. It's available in digital or paperback uh, from Amazon. So very cool. And one of the things I was going to say, actually, I'm, I'm eager to check it out because of the bleak thing. Because the one thing I found about your writing is that it wasn't bleak. I don't I don't mean that in any kind of negative negative light. Not that every story is necessarily a quote unquote happy ending, but there is a level of of hope uh, and empathy in the stories that I really appreciate. Because I'm, I'm sure Victor, you're aware that some of the horror fiction, even when it's really well written or it can really uh, really get into it. There is a whole sort of stream of let's make this as dark as we possibly can. And sometimes I think we get so focused on making it dark and making it gritty that sometimes we can lose some of the, the humanity, which is I think why I liked Bradbury so much. And so I was really excited to see in your stories that you'll you'll you're not afraid to go dark, you're not afraid to make things um even bleak at certain points for the characters, but you never lose a certain sense of hope, which I think makes the stories uh, this is a story collection that I think is really easy to sit down and read front to back, and you don't feel like you're getting dragged through like barbed wire to do it. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. Bradbury definitely has a style. Stephen King, um, even though his stuff gets very dark, I feel like it's ultimately about the human experience and the, um, you know, the, the human courage uh, in the face of darkness rather than, um, you know, uh, just the Lovecraft or the Poe approach, which is basically like, you know, man meets darkness, darkness eats man. (laughs) (laughs) So everyone's going to die. Who's going to be first. Yeah. Um, But yeah, with sound of fear, I I really just tried to, I tried to create a map to life. Like not, not again, not, not in like, these are the things that actually happened and here's what to do. But um, these are the lessons that I've learned in life emotionally. And, um, you know, if you're kind of find yourself relating to any of the characters or uh, situations, um, I tried to sort of write a fictionalized version of how I got out of that mess or, um, you know, how that's survivable. Uh, So, yeah, very, very astute of you to notice. Do you have a short story collection or a drawer in your cupboard? that you have you stash these book these away for a future book 
or do you write for six months knowing this is what's the end result? Normally, I I either get invited to contribute to an anthology or I spot one on the internet that is, uh, you know, if if, uh, anyone listening out there wants to find where to publish their stuff, uh, dark markets is the is the thing I use dark dark markets dark markets dot com, and um, for horror fiction uh, that it's basically an aggregator of all the writing opportunities. People, everybody looking to uh, you know analyze and submit fiction to them for consideration in their anthology. It tells you how much they pay and all that stuff. That's a factor too. I mean, if somebody's paying a lot more, then they're probably going to get my attention faster. <laughs> Uh, but I usually um, write something with the anthology I want to submit it to already in mind. Um, but that's not always where it ends up. You know, uh, it gets rejected. About half my stuff has been rejected and then accepted by someone else. So, you know, that's uh, that's kind of the way it goes with with writing commercial fiction. When we, we I guess we can go ahead and jump into this. I one of my favorite things is to be able to. Uh, pick up at this time of the year, particularly towards Halloween. Love watching the movies and things like that. But even with my kids, we started to try to do uh, nights where we're just reading or we're listening to audio books or audio. And that's a great thing with the podcast and everything. And um, we can probably talk about this a little bit later. But there, there, there are a couple of good uh, horror podcasts out there. Horror in the sense that they are narrated audio stories and things like that. So there's a lot of cool stuff out there. And I love at this time of the year just kind of digging into that and go... I think there's so much out there. There's a lot of really great old classic stuff, and then there's newer stuff. And I think ever since hearing uh, or, or reading in in school, and I remember somebody actually did the Telltale Heart as like a we had a librarian who was a little offbeat, and we because I think we were only in like second or third grade, and we walked yeah. in, and she like basically uh, performed the whole thing, but she was pacing back and forth, and she had like that crazy gleam in her eye, and, and you know third graders don't know what's going on. <laughs> So that was a very interesting. It must have been second grade because I, I, by second grade, I was already like starting to like push into horror. So I think I probably it was probably around that time. But uh, that and the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the, the Washington Irving, the actual story, and those are probably my first introductions. Do you have before we get into our list? Do you have an introductory story that you kind of feel maybe ushered you in, or you just remember having an impact on you, Victor? Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I I honestly don't remember what the first short horror story I read was, but it may have been Graveyard Shift in Stephen King's Night Shift collection, because um, that was the first collection I remember buying. Um, but uh, the the story, and I mean, I, I love King's writing. I, I think that even... I mean, it's he's fantastic now. I mean, he's written over seventy books, so he's incredibly, uh, <laughs> incredibly talented, incredibly skilled. Um, but even his early stuff, like even his, his stuff from the seventies and uh, and early eighties, is exploding with talent. Um, and uh, you know, reading it now, I can I can tell that it's not it's not just uh, that I'm imagining how great it was because I was eleven. Um, it's really great. And one of the things that's so cool about Stephen King is that it's enjoyable if you're 11 or if you're 52. <laughs> so, that night shift collection, um, I assume that's the one with the bandages and the eyes and the hand. I had, I still have yeah, my dog-eared yeah. copy of that. You can, you're right, you can read them now and they're just as good as they were. 
Yeah, yeah, me too. I still have my copy, and and um, yeah, but the the story that it's interesting that you should mention, um, you know, the the reading, like reading aloud, because something happened. I was at uh, Dragon Con uh, in, I think it was 1993 or 94 in um, in Atlanta, Georgia, and this the- theater guy uh, came and with this big tome. that looked like the necronomicon (laughs) and uh he just sits down silently at the at this desk facing his small audience which i was in and he reads uh hp lovecraft's pickman's model and um that really electrified me like it was so good it was so such a palpable read I, i i went back and started reading a bunch of lovecraft after that and um, I, I don't think that's his best, but man, that guy really delivered it uh, as a soliloquy, and it was it was awesome. Yeah, I love that when you have someone who's able to take the words and add that element to it, and particularly the reading. And we were just listening to um, uh, the uh, short story. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the short story, uh, Victor, called Skeleton Key. With uh, uh. it's a bunch of guys who are at a lighthouse, and then this boat pulls up and all these rats pour off of it and now they're in a lighthouse surrounded by rats and there's a great like action theater version with vincent price doing the narrating and then you can hear thousands of rats in the background (laughs) i i think i may have read that many many years ago um that that does sound familiar and i remember the like the the action with the guys fighting the rats is particularly visceral (laughs) It, it is it is indeed it gets pretty pretty grotesque and Bill, did you have one like a story that you remember? Maybe your first foray into horror fiction. Well, I, I can remember as a kid in the library, uh, the one that was always out there was scary stories to tell in the dark. That was always yeah. the one that a lot of kids do. But the one I distinctly remember because it had a really cool cover, and I was probably in about the third grade. Was Robert Louis Stevenson's "The Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll," and you know what? It was probably too advanced for me to read, but the cover was cool, and once you got hooked into it, before you know it, you're like 150 pages in, and and you finish it. And that kind of got me, but as a a young adult, as a, you know, 13-year-old, you know, you had all the Stephen King ones. You had your, I still have a a battered copy of different seasons on my shelf. Uh, The Night Shift, The Skeleton Crew. I remember reading Four Past Midnight cover to cover. So the Stephen King ones were always big on me. And of course, see, I, I, somebody like William Shakespeare, they're, not, they're plays, they're not short stories, but they sure as heck aren't long stories either. And while they're not horror stories per se, they're short, and it, once you can get through the dialect of the storytelling, the, uh, the narrative that's being told is just as much a soap opera and a vengeful story as you're going to get in modern literature. So I always enjoyed uh, listening and reading and watching Shakespeare. But I, like a true horror fan, uh, Edgar Allan Poe is close to my heart. So out of the five stories that I wrote down, three of them are Edgar Allan Poe. So we can get into that later. But between Poe, Stevenson, King, and a little bit of Shakespeare thrown in, I think I got a start early in life for the long form and the short form version of stories. That's cool. One of the things I always remember about particularly those books that I picked up at the library, I always associate it with that like 
moldering glue smell you know <laughs> the the glue that they mm-hmm. used to use on those old library books and it's gotten to a point where it's just about pungent you're you're reading the story and you may be getting high at the same time you're not sure how much is the prose and how much is the fact you're about to pass out <laughs> it's funny you should say that because i i literally ran into clive barker at um at comic con whatever for like 1990 i think was the first year i went um, back when it was easy to to go to, <laughs> and um, we were shoulder to shoulder looking through comics, and that he pretty much commented exactly what you just said to me. He's like, you know, what I really love about comics is the smell. <laughs> like it's just they're just wonderful. You know, <laughs> he was so into it. Um, very positive, fun individual. By the way, he is with some of the darkest things swimming around inside his head, but. It's probably yeah. a, a good point to, to jump into the stories. So uh, kind of open it up to you, Victor, because we had you kind of pick your, your 10 favorites, and uh, we'll probably throw some titles in and out. But uh, So if you're recommending things for people to read this, this season, do um, you want to give us one of your, your titles? Yeah, uh, sure. I'd, I'd love to. Uh, there's a book that came out a couple of years ago um, by Anthony J. Rapino um, called... Greetings from Moon Hill, and it's a collection, but uh, it's pretty unique in that um, the stories are all stories that take place in this town, this fictional town called Moon Hill, and um, the the first story in in the collection is called Halloween on the Hill, and it's a great story to read to kids. Um, there's a bunch of kind of troublemaker preteens or, or or teens i can't really remember but um they uh do some <laughs> they do some some mischief and um because they're curious about it and all hell breaks loose in the town and uh that's kind of how he starts the um the collection so i, I recommend it it's 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 very good and uh it's it's still totally in print easy to get so i had never heard of this collection at all until you put it on the list and i I actually bought a copy of it because uh, the Kindle version I saw it was like you know I think he's got it on there for like three or four dollars and uh, I haven't read all the stories I did read that one and it's a lot of fun and I think uh, Bill from Land of the Creeps perspective you guys have the pumpkin episode coming up that story fits perfectly into that's like <laughs> the perfect amalgamation of pumpkin horror in that in that story but you're right it has a kind of Stranger Things Goonie sort of feel this is like that fun. You're going trick-or-treating, you know, hopped up on candy kind of feel to the story. I liked it a lot. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, that's that's a that's a story that I may very well read to the wife this uh, this this season. Um, she's not a huge fan of horror, <laughs> so I think she'll appreciate the uh, the innocence of that story. And then uh, in reading that, I had I was thinking of um, an, an author that I enjoyed a lot. Are you familiar with Robert uh, McCammon? Robert R. McCammon. Yes, I'm familiar with his novels, but not his short stories. And his short stories were really good. I actually read his short stories before I read some of his novels. I think he did A Boy's Life and other novels that I came to later. But I think when I was in high school, I picked up Blue World, I believe, which is really good. And a few years ago, he wrote a story. In 2012, actually. I say a few. My my son was born in 2012, and he's now eight years old, going on nine. So it's, it's been a bit. But the... He wrote a short story that he put out for everybody, and it's called, uh, I think it's called Strange Candy, and uh, it's uh, 
it came out and he just released it like so everyone can get it. So it is online. I'll put the link in the show notes. But it's a really cool story that also has that kind of fun feel. But then it's and it's short and it basically deals with the father coming by and picking out you know when you, when you go trick or treating your experience is there's always some kind of weird piece of candy sitting at the bottom you know you're like where did this come from why doesn't it have a wrapper and then, mm. and that candy sits over on the side and you're like i don't know who got that did that do they even sell that in the store it looks like it came from another country and maybe it mm-hmm. did and he finds himself picking it up and then coming back to it and looking at it. And then what happens when he eventually eats that candy is not at all what you would expect. And the story kind of takes a, a weirdly poignant turn, but I would recommend that. That's a cool, you can read it in about five minutes. I would say poignant, poignant, but poignant, but spooky. Like it yes, gets really yes. spooky, ominous, dark. Cause it goes from simple dad having this minty candy to a full 180. <laughs> so mm. you <laughs> It's more melancholy than it is truly, truly like terrifying. But uh, I think those two stories have that in common. They're kind of the fun aspect of Halloween with a little bit of the, you know, melancholy involved. Cool. Yeah, yeah I'll have to pick up that collection. Yeah, well, because, I mean, Nathan sent me the link an hour before we got on. So it's online, easily accessible and available. And it literally will take you five minutes. I did it while I was watching a movie for LOTC, which... Uh, I'll take the story over the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and so, again, we'll have the link to that. You have another one on your list, um, Victor? Oh, sure, yeah. Um, also, uh, this is a, a little more mature, but I think uh, teens can probably handle it. Um, it. There's a story called Space Time for Springers by Fritz Leiber. And, um, you know, Fritz Leiber is really famous for writing a, a bunch of grimdark fantasy stories starring uh Fawford and the Grey Mauser which I can't believe they haven't made into a you know a Netflix series or a TV series somewhere cuz they're great but um this is a short story and it's about a sentient cat that lives in the family the cat is the protagonist the cat's the main character he's hyper intelligent he's as smart as a human uh, or smarter and um he, he but he is a cat you know, he he just thinks he's going to transform into a human someday, but it never happens. And uh, he suddenly becomes aware that um, in this family that he lives in, uh, there is uh, one child that is sort of um, sociopathic and is uh, very, a danger to the youngest, the baby. So he has to uh, intervene. The, the The cat has to intervene. <laughs> And so it's all from the cat's perspective. It's a brilliantly imaginative, great story. Like I said, it does get a little dark uh, towards the end, but it is also written with plenty of heart. So I highly recommend that. Space Time for Springers and the collection, which is unfortunately out of print, but you could probably find it um, on uh, eBay or Amazon Marketplace, is called The Best of Fritz Leiber, and it's from Sphere Publishing. I was so impressed with that story. That story is great. I I was reading it, I'm like, what's going on <laughs> going on here? And it is so weird. It has a very odd sort of tone to it. And I um I didn't know exactly where it was going and I was worried you say it gets dark. I was worried it was gonna get darker than it does go, because I was sort of impressed with how they wrap that story up. I always like that anthropomorphized animals but they're still in a setting where everyone else is still interacting with them the way that we would expect you know that secret interior life of your 
cat kind of deal and uh but man it, it, that also had a lot of pathos to it when you get towards the end of the story and i was like this is such a great story and you almost don't see it coming i i, th- I thought um i thought it was very impressive oh yeah i'm, I'm glad you liked it uh, i'm glad you liked it yeah he's got a lot of great ones um you know smoke ghost that's a pretty famous uh short story that he wrote that would that would have been great on this list too but uh but this is the one that most people haven't heard about so that's why i, I wanted to mention it yeah it reminded me a little bit of a story that um it, the Price by Neil Gaiman. Have you read that short story? Um, I I may have. I, I've written. Uh, I've read a lot of of his stuff. I I, I love I love his writing. Um, but uh, does it have to do with cats also by any chance? It, it does. It does. Okay. In, in okay. fact, it deals with. Uh, they have this family has a cat, and it's written kind of first person. So it, the the husband is sending the cat out, and when it comes back, it's banged up a little bit more every. Every following day, he notices it has a cut, and then uh, it's it's mm-hmm. wounded, and one of its eyes is sort of damaged. And what he realizes when he stays up one night is that it is actually defending his house against Satan, who shows up every <laughs> night. And this cat sort of has a tussle. It's, it's almost r- reminiscent of the Stephen King story from Cat's Eye with the troll who kind of comes in. And and uh, yeah. it, but it's this idea of what this cat is doing. Where did it come from? Why is it doing what it's doing? I just thought it was a really neat story. I don't think it's quite as um, – it's not as uh, introspective as the one you mentioned, but it is cool. It's called The Price, and uh, I, th- I can't remember what collection it's in, but I do think that they do have it online. You can find it online, and it's a short story. You can read it uh, in a couple of minutes. Cool. Yeah, Neil. Neil's fantastic. I, I think that he after, – after university, like he's the guy that kicked open the door of – mythology as popular literature for me and and you know made me think yeah it's it's okay to to still write about this stuff because he's the master at that yeah yeah and i think um yeah he's a ton of great stuff and the way he melds it even his book just about greek mythology is or norse mythology rather is really good uh you know you you just enjoy reading it oh yeah and did you have another one um victor oh yeah of course um yeah, I would say okay. Another another one that's kind of good for all, all age. I'm 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 trying to go down my list and kind of get more and more mature until like only eighteen year olds should read this, um, or or higher. Uh, but um, yeah, there's a there's a, a a short story called The Summer People by uh, Shirley Jackson um, that was written in 1950, and um, it's great. It's a pretty short story, uh, and it's definitely in. Um, available in various collections. Um, but, um, you know, Shirley Jackson, uh, wrote the, you know, the haunting of Hill house and, um, a bunch of famous novels. And of course the lottery is probably her most famous short story. Um, but this I think is standing, it stands alone from her, uh, body of work in its weirdness. And what I mean by that is there's the main thing about it is never explained. It's just, creepy as hell it's it's a couple that live in the city and they vacation at this uh, village uh, apart from the city for for the summer and um one year the because of the weather they decide to stay the couple decides to stay a, a few extra days and you know they start going around town and seeing the locals sort of returning to normal like all the city people or the summer people uh, have left and they keep encountering, you know, store clerks and people about town going, 
oh yeah, well, you know, the summer people usually go back to the city by now, you know, and soon that's pretty much all they say. Uh, and you're left with this feeling of what's going to happen to them. <laughs> like, the, it seems like it's uh, some kind of weird cult or something like that. But the fact that she never explains exactly what it is, but that something weird is definitely going on, is in itself frightening to read. So that's that's a really good one, The Summer People by Shirley Jackson. And I had never read that one before either, uh, and, and just read it, in fact, um, a couple of days ago. And it's... Uh, I, we had just recently, Bill, we had just finished reviewing um, The Innocence, and we were talking about The Innocence, and yep. of course it was an adaptation of Turn of the Screw, and that one, I mentioned that one of the things I love about uh, a horror story is when it ends, and rather the, the, the movie, the story stops, but the events keep going, you know, and I kind of love it when the movie or the story is still happening, and the screen has gone dark, and that's kind of what happens here in this story, things are still happening in a sense when that story sort of closes and there's still a lot that you're like wait that's it where's what but it is weirder i mean because it doesn't have a definitive nature to it the way they say the lottery does it has that nice you're waiting for a nice twilight zone there it is and this is more joyce carol Oates sort of kind of feel of like yo uh there's a lot of ground to be covered and I, we're not going to get it covered <laughs> yeah and Bill, did you have any uh, any stories uh, that you wanted to share? Well, the one that uh, I wanted to talk about was uh, Stephen King's In Different Seasons. I, I think that's a, a masterful book of the uh, of longer short stories. They're all each I don't know a hundred pages or so. And the one that always stood out to me, I think it's the history in me, was Apt Pupil. And I, I really liked the story. For those of you unfamiliar, is uh, a teenager notices somebody next door, and he's an older man, and he turns out to be have been a Nazi guard in World War II uh, in one of the uh, concentration camps. And he kind of uses them for his purposes, and then he kind of goes down the road of where he becomes, he doesn't need them anymore, and then he goes into a killing spree. And they did adapt it into a movie, which, you know, the movie's here or there, but I thought it was a dark, historical modern day take on something that up until about five, 10 years ago was still happening where you'd find somebody who's your next door neighbor that was at Dachau or something like that. So I, that one, I really, really liked. Um, I don't know if Victor, if you've read apt pupil, what your thoughts on that one was. I have not, I've not read different seasons uh, or any of the individual stories in it. So I, I will definitely pick that up now. Yeah. Like, I mean, in that, within that uh, series is the Shawshank redemption story and the body, which ended up being Stand By Me. So three of the four are in that. So, you know, it's, you could tell, you know, Stephen King had had a certain level of success. And I don't know if these were just sitting around and he compiled them or he wrote them for this purpose. But it's a really good read, that book, if you haven't got it. Yeah, I'm familiar with the movies that came from them, but I haven't read any of the source material. And I really should. So, yeah, I appreciate your mentioning that. And uh, did you have another one, Victor, on your list? Oh, yeah. Um yeah, I I would say um just to shift gears for a second, like I there was a a book that just came out. It's um it's it's a graphic novel um and uh it's a uh, you know manga uh illustrated and written by a guy named Junji Ito and um you might be familiar with uh, Uzumaki uh which he wrote which is just about to be made into a movie or a series. 
and um, Tomie. Uh, he's he's had a few. He's like part of the school of what uh, people call the new weird, which is they're basically Lovecraftian ideas, but they're in a modern setting. Um, and uh, I, I this is not something, unfortunately, that you can read to someone else and have the same effect. You read it alone, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's very appropriate for this story called yeah. Billions Alone. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's from a collection called Venus in the Blind Spot. That just came out. It, it came out a few weeks ago, and um, it uh, billions alone is. It's basically a lonely, like a sh- almost a shut-in young man, and uh, he reconnects with uh, a high school sweetheart. But in the meantime, there are these weird murders going on in the Japanese town they're in, and. Uh, no one knows how the murders are committed, but corpses are found stitched together. And um, the the image, and this is one of the things that's so cool about Ito, is um, the way he brings shock value to the story is he will draw the comic so that when you flip the page, you'll see the shocking image. Like you'll see the first you see the characters go oh, like the, surprised at what they see. And then you flip the page and you see the image. So it's really designed for maximum impact in that way. And, um, I, I don't want to give away what happens in, in billions alone, but, uh, needless to say, when people, it starts out with two corpses sewn together, then it's a small group, then it's a larger group. Um, and soon everybody starts realizing that they're not safe if they're hanging out with other people. Um, so it, it's a great uh, story to read during these uh, isolation times. And um, I thought it was a great metaphor for that with a completely shocking ending that you don't expect at all. <laughs> so, so is this a human centipede situation? Uh, yeah, a, a bit. A bit, yeah. Um, it it is. It did remind me of that a little bit, but um, it's it's more of a unexplained phenomena. Uh, and and like like Shirley Jackson's story, it's never really explained how it's happening, um, but it's happening, and that's the important thing. Yeah, that that's a good way to describe it, right? It's it's. I don't know why it's happening, but it's happening, and that's kind of what matters to the characters. Bill, I actually think you would appreciate his work quite a bit because you mentioned the human centipede, and it, it, there is that Shirley Jackson sense. Uh, and what you said, um, Victor, the new weird, but there's a lot of kind of Cronenberg and and just gross out. Like, Ito's stuff, he seems, from everything I've read about him, he seems like a really cool, mild-mannered guy, not unlike, you know, Barker. But the stuff in his head is insane. And the images, the drawn images, are horrifying. The things that Victor's talking about are done as graphically grotesque as you can possibly imagine. And his stories are so weird. He has a story, I don't know if it's in that collection, but he's got a story where these giant head balloons just start showing up in the sky. And the person that they look like, there's a there's a noose hanging down from them so that person can go and potentially is drawn to sort of hang themselves. You know, the ideas are so weird. And this one particularly, Victor, I thought I had never seen this, Billions Alone, and I didn't, I saw, okay, it's a new collection. And I was reading the synopsis and I realized I had actually, and it's, it's online, and I had read it previously as a story called Army of One. And I don't know... Mm. 
the tagline that's coming across that radio or whatever. But as far as I can tell, it's identically the same mm. story. I Maybe he just felt Billions Alone was a more apropos statement than Army of One. But I'll put a link in the show notes uh, and you can see that. But uh, same story, very weird. Cool. Did you ever Did you ever read The Enigma of Amagara Fault? Yes. <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a really weird one too, Bill, where... These people, the, the, the side of a rock face is excavated on this, this kind of cave side. And what they find there are that there are these weird engravings. But they're not so much engravings as that they're hollowed out holes in the side of the wall. But they are, they are cutouts of, of people. They're like a, like, almost like a, uh, the, the outline of a person. And they fit different people. So you are in, compelled to find the hole that you fit in and sort of climb into it. It's so weird. So, so, so is this kind of like a David Wong type of writing? No, it's not. It's it, it's very, um, it's very sort of metaphysical and very um, uh, dark. Uh, it's not. It's not played for humor. It's all very horrifying in an existential way. Would you say that's about right, Victor? Yes. Yes. It's. Um, it, it's. There are all, all the stories, as far as I can remember, seem to be based on just one insane idea uh, of like, what if this happened uh, and then it just it, he follows that idea through to the impossible end of of what that could be um and it's pretty unique i, I mean a lot of his stories are similar to each other but um but he's unlike anybody i'm currently reading i think we're safe to put the warning this is the kind of only 18 you know you really can't i wouldn't <laughs> recommend uh, this is pretty gruesome and pretty can get pretty out there and pretty grotesque um uh yep. content wise yep so buyer beware <laughs> a little bit you'll you'll dig it bill i'll put some links in you'll, you'll <laughs> okay <dig it>. all <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay well i was gonna go next with one an edgar Allan poe story that kind of goes under the radar a bit and victor i'm sure knows it well i'm sure you do and that's the oblong box by Edgar Allan Poe about this uh, gentleman that goes on a boat boating trip on one of these uh, higher end boats, but uh, it's cruise ships, but it's back in, I, I think the early 1900s or so. And he meets up with a, he's supposed to meet up with a fellow artist and there's four people in their party, but there's, he books three rooms. And in one of the rooms is this oblong box and the guy's trying to figure out why has he got this box in there? What's going on in there? It's oddly the size of a human or so. But you not you don't really know. You you have to imply quite a bit into it. And at the end, the ship is going down, and uh, only a few people get out. And the uh, artist has to uh, jump, uh, go back into the ship to get this oblong box. And he ends up going down and sinking in the ocean with this box. And it kind of gets explained in the end. I'm not going to give away the ending, but I always think this is one of his underrated stories. And they did make a Vincent Price movie years later, but <clears throat> not years later. I mean, 1969. But it has only the title and name only, maybe some thematic similarities. But it has nothing to do with X. It doesn't have to do with Y. I don't know if either of you two have read The Oblong Box. I, I'm sure I have, but uh, I don't. I don't recall. Uh, and right after this, <laughs> I will sit down and reread it. Um, but yeah, it's it's a, a great title. Uh, it, it won't take you long, 10 minutes at most. If you have a cup of brandy in your hand or something, just read it and what have you. Yeah, it's a good one, but I'm kind of like, Victor, I'm coming up short on how it actually wraps up. 
like I have the images of the Price movie, but I'm trying to remember the short story, and I too feel like I want to go go pick it back up and read it. But I was gonna say I don't I, I don't want to give it away. It's not a long story, so and yeah. it won't tax you to read. I'll definitely check that out. You have another one on your list, um, Victor? Oh yeah, um, yeah. While while uh, while we're on uh, mature and up, uh, I recommend In the Hills, The Cities by Clive Barker. From 1984, it's it's in his Books of Blood collection. Um, so I think it's in the first the first book. But man, this is <laughs> I I don't even um, it's it, the idea is so wild that it's almost like Barker is horrifying you with the power of his imagination. It's uh, it's such a wild idea. Um, but basically, um, it's. Uh, it's told from the point of view of two gay lovers and um they happen upon this these older settlements and uh realize that there is this tradition that these older settlements have where they make these giant human monsters out of people like you know these are like human pyramids except they move they punch they run you know and they're made up of bodies and um and they, uh, the the characters are swept up in this, and um, it is just—I mean—I just couldn't believe what I was reading. It was like, wow, <laughs> he's really this is really happening in this story. So, uh, yeah, I really recommend that one. I—that's probably one of the things that Barker has written that will never be made into a movie or TV show, but you never know, CG maybe. But yeah, that that couldn't be done practically. <laughs> I can't imagine. No. Well. <laughs> <laughs> the the kind of thing there the that is probably one of my all time favorite stories of any kind. You're right, Victor. It's like there's nothing else that I can even think like it. I mean, even all the Edo stuff we're just talking about, like because the concept, it, it, Bill, just to flesh just the concept out a little bit more. No pun intended mm-hmm. there. It's not like they're sewn together or anything. It's like they're scaffolded in. Like the town is fully alive. It's a thing they participate. It's like they've made a giant kaju. But the entire town forms it, and so they walk it and they move it across. But then the immediately once Barker's come up with such a weird eye, he's like, how could this go horribly, horribly yeah. wrong? And it goes as badly wrong as you could imagine. And because you're sitting there thinking, this is a fun idea. And then suddenly he just he turns into the horror so abruptly <laughs> that you it, it's so dark. It's just so dark. Um, but it's such a good story. And I... One of my big disappointments, Hulu just did a Books of Blood movie, and with the exception of basically the wraparound, is nothing to do. None of them are Barker's stories. Um, I think you could do this one in animation or with stop motion, like a... uh, Not that that I'm suggesting the people who did Coraline should make this, but (laughs) but that kind of thing, you know. I think... um, I don't know if any of you guys saw the... um, there was, I think it was called Extraordinary Tales. There was a Poe movie made a couple years ago that Del Toro produced, and it was done with all different types of animation, and some of it was very avant-garde. I think that's about the only way you could do this one. But I think you could do it this way. And as The more I think about it, because a lot of Barker... I think this one was done in a graphic novel. Mm. A lot of Barker stories get adapted into like graphic novels that take two or three of his stories. And I think his, I think his works lend themselves well to animation or illustration where you can imagine it and you're not held in by 
we got to make this real. We got to build this suit. We got to, you know, put the pins in this guy's head. Yeah, no, he he loves uh, comics. I know that, and uh, I, I, he also is is a pretty accomplished painter. So um, yeah, he's sort of into the arts, so to speak. Video games. He's a renaissance. He is a renaissance yeah. man. And then, um, what else do you have, Victor? Well, um, let's see. I I I love to talk about the Outsider, and the, not the Stephen King novel, but the um, the short story uh, written by H.P. Lovecraft in 1921. Um, I think this is it's one of my favorite stories of his. It's fairly short. It's easy to read, and um, I think it's first person, and. Um, yeah, it starts out the, the 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 narrator wakes up and he's in the basement of a castle somewhere and he's like, "How did I get here? I've got to get out." And he starts um sort of figuring out in the dark how to get his way up to the surface. And um he eventually comes to the surface and goes to a neighboring castle and uh is met with looks and remarks of horror from the people within. And um, I will leave it there um, so I don't spoil the... Uh, no spoiler alert for a story written in 1921. But um, uh, it's it's a pretty classic story. It's really brilliant the way he gets to the twist ending. And um, it definitely reminds me uh, of a Poe style. And I know Lovecraft really admired Poe growing up reading. Uh, and it, it's almost like Poe wrote it. But I think that the the inner horror that's in the in the narrator, like the ugliness inside, I think is also a telegraph of Lovecraft's own psychological problems more than any of his other stories. Like I think that he's really maybe unconsciously, maybe not, maybe consciously writing about his own ugliness in in this um, in this story, and it's absolutely a classic brilliantly written it was made into um a horror flick in the 80s uh called castle freak um but there's a the castle freak uh, Stuart gordon directed uh you know put a lot more story in there to to beef it up so it's it's worthy of you know being a 90 minute movie um the story is really just like uh, 10 pages or so yeah i remember we did the the Stuart gordon on on uh for lotc i think it was the episode that they had me on and I think that Gordon said basically when he first went to the offices of um, Charles Band, they had a, a picture. And it was just a like an image, and he's all oh, this is gonna be a movie, Castle Freak. There's your castle, and there's your freak. And so <laughs> Sir Gordon was said, okay, fine. And then I think Gordon, being you know who was also a guy who was very well read and very kind of literary, he and and who always went to the well for Poe, right? Like he or and Lovecraft, that he sort of thought about that and said, okay. I think he made the connections between the story because you're right. The movie is not that much like the story. This story, I think, is maybe it's one. It's it's probably in my top five Lovecraft stories. And we read this was one where we probably misjudged and we read this one to the kids, <laughs> and it really they were really into it, but they got really freaked out when you get to the very yes. end and the implications of what the end means. So. Um, we we backpedaled and did something fun and light afterwards. Yeah, but. yeah, and I I just wanted to like I just wanted to tag on to that. Um, there's a there's a novella that was written by Victor Laval about four or five years ago, 
which is uh, a, you know, he's an African-American writer and uh, he loves horror and he grew up loving Lovecraft. Uh, and, you know, how do you reconcile, you know, being African-American and loving Lovecraft, who's, you know, very uh, disparaging to, <laughs> to blacks in his writing? Um, and what Victor did is incredible. Um, he has written, um, uh, it's a, the novella is called The Ballad of Black Tom. And it takes place in the 1920s, and it's basically a retelling of Lovecraft's story, The Horror at Red Hook, um, but it's told from the point of view of a black cultist. Uh, so, you know, I, I highly, highly recommend everybody pick this up. It's absolutely brilliant. He he turned his um, reckoning with Lovecraft, I mean, the writer uh, turned his uh, reckoning with Lovecraft into art. By making the story, I think there's nothing more positive he could have done with that. I got to check that out. I mean, obviously they're doing the same the, um, with the novel or the Lovecraft Country, and of course, which HBO is is done with the show. There's similar things happening there. Se- seems like I've not read this, but it's going to the top of my list. That sounds really, really good. Victor Lavelle. Yeah, yeah, very cool. I will put the yeah because that that's the tricky thing with Lovecraft. Yeah, uh, so, sometimes the racism is casual, and um, sometimes it's a uh, very in in the front in the forefront uh and um it's unfortunate because like for example the rats in the walls is a story i totally would have uh talked about on the show but um it's really horrible like i wouldn't i can't recommend it to modern audiences because of the racism in it and um yeah uh i mean it was just it, it was it's it was part of his psychological makeup and it's probably the other half of what made him a great writter, like the paranoia and the um, monomania. Yeah, I think all that stuff, yeah. like he's he's a writer of outsiders. I mean, no pun intended with the story we just talked about, but um, like he writes outsider literature as opposed to like group stories like Stephen King does. Like you ever notice like Stephen King's stuff is usually like it's a band of friends and they have to confront the evil by standing together and... Um, Lovecraft is not. It's always like some brilliant loner, and he finds out too much about something in the universe that he shouldn't have known and or shouldn't have delved into. And he becomes even more of a loner. And, and, and uh, is either driven to insanity or killed, you know? <laughs> Sorry. The one Lovecraft story I've always wanted to read and haven't is Dagon. Do you guys look, yeah, know that's Dagon's great. Dagon's a good story. It's good. It's very different. It's not like the uh, the movie Dagon is more an adaptation of The Shadow of Innsmouth than it is Dagon. Uh, Dagon is a short story is is very much in that heart of the that Cthulhu overarching great evil sort of. It I think it takes place at sea, doesn't it, uh, Victor? If I remember correctly, yeah. or or an on an island. island. Yeah, it's a it's like a shipwreck that. survivor. So it has some of that that element, probably more in the ma- the mountains of madness sort of vein than um, than some of the other stories. But it's probably good to point out that the outsider though. Although I think you you tapped into that about the fact that it probably reveals a lot of what Lovecraft saw himself and other people. It does not contain, as far as I'm aware, any of the racial, racial overtones. It's pretty much just straight a a horror story without any of those things. You can read that one and not have to deal with the those other Correct. elements. Correct, yeah. Um, and, and I think that Lovecraft suspected there were things wrong with himself. I don't think he thought his racism was wrong, but I I do think that he knew he was mismanaged <laughs> growing up by his parents, and uh, and he knew that there, that he didn't fit in with with other people. And I think the outsider is a perfect metaphor for that. Yeah, I agree, and it's it's probably one of his best stories. 
Uh, a story I wanted to mention, Victor, just to talk about for a minute, but I think also falls into these older stories that have in, influenced a lot of people, but sometimes you meet people who haven't read it or aren't familiar with it. Are you familiar with The Great God Pan by Arthur Mockham? Very. As a matter of fact, uh, yeah, yeah, Scripto Inferior in my collection was highly inspired by Great God Pan. I suspect <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Uh, I love it. I love it. Um, and did yeah, and it's a it's a really interesting story. It deals uh, Stephen King. I think was very inspired by it when he mentioned when he wrote recently the novel Revival, and you can see a lot of those elements. But it has that. I don't want to get too much into the story. It's a longer novella, but it's totally worth reading. It's also very dark for the time period it's written in. It kind of goes into some places you would not expect a story at that time frame to go into. But it has the sort of scientists pushing beyond the the reach of man it has some lovecraftian vibes without obviously being lovecraftian mm-hmm. uh, probably proto lovecraftian mm-hmm. maybe and um but man it, that's probably one of my favorite stories because you just don't i didn't see where that one was going and it really gets into that that pessimistic i don't know if a nihilist but that 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 feeling of chaos at the center of the universe you know that when the, when you find out what's really going on you're only going to feel worse <laughs> right it's 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 one of those stories you walk away from going oh you know thank goodness we only have our limited senses you know that we can't see what's really out there <laughs> but yeah it yeah yeah i think my daughter asked me today she was reading these little things off of like you know, a question of, would you rather have superpowers or know everything? I was like, well, I don't even care what those superpowers are, but I'll take that over know everything. <laughs> I've read enough horror novels to know that that's, oh, that's a bad deal. Yeah, no, I, I know that, uh, yeah, this was written in the 1800s, and it's incredibly advanced horror for, for that time where there was almost none. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it's by far the, the most resonant thing that I think Machen ever wrote, uh, but he was a really interesting dude. Uh, he was into, uh, you know, heavily into religion, and then he got into occult societies. So he was sort of a, a, a delver into mystic mysteries, and then fictionalized a lot of that in his fiction. Um, and I guess that's what you do—you fictionalize stuff in your fiction. And um, it, it was—it's great. That's uh, that's by far my favorite story of his. Uh, Stephen King, you know, loves it. Lovecraft loved it. Um, it, 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 I'm, it totally inspired Lovecraft to do a lot of his Cthulhu, like his mind blowing, uh, you know, elder gods and stuff like that. Like it's, you can, you can trace the, the DNA back to the story. So it's, it's a, it's a good one. Have you read that one, Bill? Uh, no, I have not. Is it readily available? Uh, I'm, it is. It's in the public domain, so I think that you could probably find it online. It is a longer story. It would probably be good to get like, um, like on a, a Kindle or something like that to read than scrolling because it, it is longer. But uh, and it, it's it's in a lot of collections, I think. But it's probably it's what it's up there. I think one of the most probably influential horror stories. It's definitely one of my favorites. Um, did you have a cool. oh, go ahead, Bill? I was just going to say I I look forward to finding it and giving it a whirl. Did you have any others on your list, Bill? Um, I mean, other than Poe, we can talk about Poe forever. Telltale Heart, Telltale Heart is my all-time favorite short story, but uh, we've talked about that in other places. The one I wanted to bring that everyone knows but I think needs the attention is uh, The Monkey's Paw by W.W. W. Jacobs about a soldier that comes to a house, and it's, uh, he has the story of this, of this paw that will give you three wishes, but you better be wary of how you get those wishes. And there's this couple that needs their money, $200, and they wish for the $200. And let's just say the result of having 
what happened happened. They get their money, but they are trying to get back what happened to them. And something scurries out of a house at the end that you're kind of going, whoa. So um, I, I quite like that one. And the reason it came up is uh, most of you know I'm a teacher. And the grade 7 class in our school just recently was doing that because I saw the grade 7 teacher photocopy to them. And I thought, how cool would that be at, at that age to get a hold of a classic novel like that. I mean, I don't know if it's something that could make a school play, but I, I've always, it stuck with me from a young age. So I think The Monkey's Paw, if you haven't read that, it's not a long, I could, you probably read it in less than five minutes. I, I would have loved to have seen a school play of that. Like, that's, that's a great story. <laughs> I, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see uh, someone do a radio play of that right yeah. now. It's, it, I was just thinking what it would be like to be the seventh grader who's never read it or seen it or aware of it. Cause it's so, it's one of those stories that's so ingrained, I guess as a horror fan now, it's like, even, I don't even think you have to be a horror fan. You know, it's so, to be able to have written that piece of, <laughs> a piece of literature and how influential it's been. Yeah. I mean, just about any fantasy novel or, you know, deep dark horror has taken some kind of concept from that. I mean, I just reviewed uh, needful things and it takes a, you know, a slice out of it. Totally. Yeah. And do you have any others, uh, Victor? Uh, yeah, I, I would just like to mention one more, or yeah, at least two more. Um, I guess one also, I guess also for mature audiences, this one's kind of hard to gauge, but um, Ray Bradbury's The October Game. Uh, and um, the ending is implied, but it's quite gruesome. <laughs> And um, the October game, I, I wasn't aware that that's what this game is called, but until I read the story. But uh, it's basically the the game where you turn out the lights and you bring out some props and you you know walk them around the room and have kids put their hands in spaghetti and go like, "This is the guts of the murdered victim." And, um, and they go, you, you know, and, and these are the eyes and you get some peeled grapes and stuff like that. Um, so I think I just kind of basically gave away the ending, but, um, (laughs) it's, it's Bradbury, like, like you said, Nathan, um, really writes humanistic stories. Like that's, that's his, what he's most comfortable doing. And, and he's written tons of successful ones from that point of view. This is very nihilistic, um, and uh but it's there's nothing supernatural about it it's just something that happens and it's on halloween so <laughs> if you're if you kind of uh have a bent for the more ghoulish side of things i'd recommend this one to be read aloud because it's pretty short it's got a nice shock ending and um and it's ray bradbury he's a great writer so can't go wrong. He usually likes to draw you in and bring you into all this kind of fanciful stuff in this very sort of magical way. And he kind of walking you through. And this is more like that clip from The Simpsons where they just showed George C. Scott getting hit in the crotch with a football. It's kind of <laughs> the literary version of that. He's just like, nope, I'm just going to kick you and run. Yeah, yeah, totally. But uh, I, I like that story a lot. Uh, another good one he did was um, The Small Assassin in a similar vein. Uh, about a woman who thinks that her newborn infant has been trying to kill her since even before it uh, it was born. Such a cool idea. And, uh, 
yeah and he kind of goes for it that's the thing you're like because because so much of his other stuff does have that sort of gentle tone that when he gets a hold of something you're like ah he's not gonna yeah he did, yeah, he did. right and and it he kind of builds it builds up small assassin like it's the it's all in her mind which you know that makes total sense it's postpartum depression right we know that exists now and it's it's you know a, a popular uh thing to to happen to women that has have just given birth but you know the way she goes into it going no you don't understand like the baby only misbehaves when i am only around like you know when you're here he's totally nice and you're like oh maybe this is more like the omen you know <laughs> <laughs> and it, it goes places too and you're like whoa yeah okay yeah. um yeah that, that that's a that's a great one and honestly you really can't bradbury's got a whole collection called the october country and so uh, he he had a thing for Halloween. He'd written the Halloween tree, you know, something wicked this way comes, uh, the novel. And honestly, I love the movie. Beautiful, particularly for a fall. He you can't go wrong with Bradbury. Almost anything that that he he did, particularly in his short stories, a lot of great stuff there. Uh, me too. Also, uh, the crowd. Uh, I think we we started our conversation talking about that, and it's one of my favorite stories of his too. Um, not not as dark, but it's really chilling. <laughs> um, I don't think we talked about it yet. You've got a story on the list by Roll Dahl. Do you want to talk about that one a little bit? Oh yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, uh, the landlady. Uh, it's it was written in 1960, and I, I just wanted to say how much this story reminded me of the first act of Psycho. Um, not the the theft of the money, but like once Marion gets to the hotel in Psycho, the, what she encounters, like all the stuffed, <laughs> the stuffed birds, which I guess is telegraphing the fact that she's in, in great danger, right? Because her last name's Crane, so she's kind of a bird. Um, and uh, that's basically what this story, which actually predates Psycho um, by a year. Uh, is is about and um, it's it's just this traveling salesman who's like oh yeah these other salesmen were up in these parts but we don't know what happened to them and um, you know I just put me put me up for the night and um, she's got some some animals around the house <laughs> the animals uh, he notices after a while aren't moving and um, and then he's like oh. Uh, uh, you know what, what's going on with these? And she's like, "Oh, they've they've been stuffed." You know, and um, by that time, of course, he's noticed a strange almond smell in uh, the tea, I believe, that he's drinking, and uh, knows that he's in for a similar fate. Um, but yeah, this this is a a trope. Now, I mean, as far as I know, this is the first time something like this was written. But this has been used and overused, abused. Like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, hundreds of times uh, where it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's a doddering old woman and she's very innocent, but she's actually, uh, you know, killing absolutely everyone that comes <laughs> to stay for the night. And um, it's a great story. Yeah, Roald Dahl. I mean, I know he wrote uh, children's books, but let's not forget, he wrote this. He wrote a lot of ghost stories, a lot of horror stories, and um, and he wrote... Um, uh, you only live twice. Uh, the script, I think, which is probably the most brutal James Bond movie <laughs> there is, and um, and a great movie called The Night Digger. Uh, if um, if you ever want to look at just a depressing uh, relationship between a, a woman and her adoptive mother, and she's forced to take care of the you know the the adoptive mother who's uh, you know who can't walk anymore, um, it's just uh, heartbreaking um, and uh, great. But it's a great, great movie. Um, so highly recommend that. Sounds like a great, fun time. 
Yeah, it's it's not a happy movie. Um, but uh, yeah, Roald Dahl also has um, a TV series that's available on Amazon called Tales of the Unexpected, I think. And this is in there. Like, this is one of those stories. Oh, is so it's on do- Prime, actually. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I saw that Dahl's name was on it. I don't think I've ever seen any of the episodes. I remember this story though it's lucky this guy didn't get sewed into a walrus but yeah uh because <laughs> yeah. i was thinking that too as you're as reading it but the fun the thing about doll is his children's books or people who don't remember are dark too you know charlie and chocolate mm-hmm. factory is extraordinarily dark james and the giant peach i mean i think the kids parents are eaten by rhinoceros in the first sentence of that book or something like that <laughs> and then he spends yeah. most of it with these two like grotesque ants and then the rest of it with giant insects i mean it's not you know some of the stuff when you sit and think about it you're like yeah this he was already dark he has that really droll sense of humor that's even present in this story yes yes and a lot of the, the the TV episodes that are in that series are like that. Like there's, it's a twist ending. It's very Twilight Zone ish, but horror and and usually not supernatural. Like it's it's just somebody doing a bad thing. It's got a little bit of like the uh, like O Henry and a little Hitchcock and a little bit of you know a little bit of this. As you said, some of this stuff predates Hitchcock, so or at least the Hitchcock like Psycho. Yes, yes, that's very true. And did you have any others, uh, Victor? Uh, just one, I think, um, I wanted to mention the yellow wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Um, and I think this stands apart from the rest of the stories we talked about in that it's, it's a nonviolent story. Um, but the conflict is psychological. It's, uh, it's obviously it's, it's a, it was written in, actually, I don't know when it was written. Um, but it was, uh, written in the old days <laughs> and um it was written at a time where i believe where husbands were responsible for their wives uh well-being and could pretty much tell them what to do um legally you know the the, the women didn't have any uh agency in in american law at that at that point yet so this is a woman who is a writer and um, she's gets all excited about her stories, and the husband's like, "No, no, no, that's no good," and assigns her to a bed rest at this cottage that they that they have rented, and um, basically confines her to this room. And every time she starts going, "Okay, I'm better now. Like I'm ready to get out," he's like, "No, no, no, no. I think you need a lot more rest." Uh, and slowly, the confinement and isolation start driving her insane. And uh, so it's not a happy story, but the way she writes it is really, um, it stays with you. Uh, it's It certainly stayed with me after I, I, I wrote it. And I, I think that even though it's supposed to be um, a, uh, you know, a metaphor for, uh, for women getting, getting agency and, and being able to get themselves out of a situation like that, um, I I think it can also be applied to any situation where you are powerless and you're in uh, a prison of sorts, uh, being well taken care of. Like you know, kids that are you know growing up with sort of overbearing helicopter parents might uh, identify with this. Um, you know, I, I could think of a, a hundred other things, but anyway, um, great story, very well written. Um, and, um, the way the main character starts losing her mind where she starts kind of concentrating on the patterns in the wallpaper is a great, um, unreliable narrator trope, uh, that has been copied many times since, but 
Highly recommend it. If you want something that's nonviolent to read, it's a great read aloud read uh, at Halloween. So I was just going to say, sounds fascinating. Can't wait to get a hold of that one. It's good, and it's not a very long story. And when her, when her mind starts to go towards the end and what she begins to see and what begins to happen, so incredibly creepy. Like, just at the horror level of the story. Because in a lot of ways, as you point out, Victor, it isn't a horror story in the sense that there are ghosts per se or something really horribly awful in a in a in a violence way happens but it gets pretty creepy towards the very end of the story and it that that sense of sort of imprisonment that's happening is also creepy yes sir yeah and and just uh, from the historic history of horror point of view um you know obviously when when this was written it was very tough for women to get published in this field so I think it's a landmark in that way as well. And because it's about uh, a woman's point of view and it's been horrorized, it's, I think, particularly important in in uh, what we've been talking about. So. And I, um, we can wrap up here shortly. I just wanted to I, – I had had a list. I know you have the list too. Are there any stories off of that list um, – and I'll mention a couple when we're done – but that jump off to you, Victor, that you've read or remember – uh yeah, uh, besides the great god Pan, oh Blood Child, uh, Octavia Butler, yeah, um, we should probably mention that because it's it's it was written in ninety five, like it's a it's a pretty recent story, very cool. Um, you know it's an it's a slipstream sci fi horror, uh, but um, I think where it really shines is um. There is an explicit sex scene between an insect alien and a human, and it's really creepy. Um, I, I don't even, I can't even begin to describe why. Uh, <laughs> because but, it's not what you, because people are hearing us say this, and it's even not what you're thinking. Because in right. the way in which Butler presents it, it's not done like, and it, reproduction is maybe a better, but... But reproduction with the emotional attack, it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain without reading it because we're, we're probably making it sound ickier but less creepy than it really is. Yes. Um, yeah, it is, it is pretty mind-blowing to read. It's, she's, she's great. Um, I, I highly recommend her stuff. Uh, it's, I, I would say it's more on the sci-fi side than the horror side, yeah. but there's definitely some body horror in it. In it. Um, and, um, yeah, one of my favorites, uh, definitely, of, of everything we talked about. I think she had gone somewhere and the, the, the fly that lays its eggs under your skin or whatever, you know, this idea of something sort of deciding to make you <laughs> make you its uh, incubator without you having a say is sort of where that story goes. And then it is also dealing with sort of feminist elements and things that aren't that are probably connected in some ways to what we saw with the yellow wallpaper. But there's so many things going on. She was such a great writer and some of her short stories are amazing on how many things are happening all at the same time. Because you read it first and you'd be like, ugh, and then you think about it, and then you think about it a little bit more, and you find yourself just lingering on it. I mean, because it's not, we probably made it sound a little bit like a shock story. It's not at all. It's a very no. thought-provoking, um, but creepy, very creepy. Yeah, it's it's more like a David Cronenberg movie. Like, uh, yes. y- you know, it's like, well, you'd never imagine a union between humans and this but that's exactly what literally happens and you know that's it's kind of it made me feel like that like it's like whoa they're going all the way yeah, yeah they do <laughs> and they do in all in all senses there yeah um 
And any others on that list? Have you read Home Delivery that Stephen King wrote? Yeah, yeah, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. Um, that's the it's the zombie one, right? Uh, yes, in the in the eighties, they decided to get to, uh, some publishers got together and decide, and, and authors got together and decided, hey, let's do a whole series of stories set within Romero's Dead World, because I think at that point, Day of the Dead has probably just come out or is coming out. And it's the zombies are all the rage again. And so they get all these popular writers, one of whom is King, to write a story, but specifically set it in the George Romero zombie universe, in a sense, when, when that happens. Oh, and there so are, cool. Yeah. And it's, it's neat because he deals with these people who are on a little island, um, probably in Maine somewhere. And when the apocalypse happens, they realize that, hey, we've got to jump on this a little bit because we only have one graveyard in this island. So if we... If we plan now, we can maybe we can get through this okay. And then you've got this woman whose husband went out to the sea and didn't come back, and she's pregnant. And so, uh, like we've said all along, King, he's got the hopefulness, he's got the let's stand together, but then here's all this horrible stuff on the outside that's happening. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, it, it, when you described it, I, I seem to recall it a lot. I, I haven't read it for quite some years. I think it came out in the 90s sometime, um, but... Uh, well, I mean, Stephen Stephen King is the the master. I mean, I think that he he he's really the you know the 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 emperor of living horror writers. I think that you know everybody, including myself, owes their career in you know speculative horror fiction to him. Um, and as far as I know, he's got the largest body of work as well. Um, he's just been writing his ass off since he was in his twenties. So. And I was going to say, what makes him such a good writer is not that he's a simple writer, but he writes in a simple way. He writes in a way that any audience member or a reader, regardless of your university or you've just got high school, he does themes and he tells it in a way that you get it, you want to keep reading, but it's not going to overcomplicate your life by reading the stories. And I think that's the universal appeal that he has. Yes, yes. I, I think you're exactly right. You're 100% right. And I think that... Um furthermore he's perfect to read aloud uh to your yes. significant other or to a small group at halloween because his stuff is so easy to read it's kind of it seems to me counterpoint that people don't always think about because i think they focus solely on horror writer is that he's kind of he's dickens to us really right like in yeah. a sense i mean i i kind of take it to like if you read ernest hemingway it's not a tough read but he's a very well-written author. Same kind of thing, Stephen King. It's it's very similar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's true that if you uh, are inspired by the show and, and you want to read, um, you know, some Lovecraft or something like that, my advice is to maybe take, uh, take a read through once before you read it in public um, because um, sometimes writers, I mean, like Lovecraft, for example, likes to put a lot of 50 cent words in his writing unnecessarily uh, like you know they're words that you have to look up <laughs> uh, and um he's got some other words you can't read in public so make sure you do peruse that one before you uh. <laughs> yeah peruse the material um but i think all the ones that we've recommended are yes, yes. safe like yeah. they're as long as you can read them as long as you can pronounce all the words and they, they're good, yeah. they're okay to yeah, read we're not we're not doing any jack ketchum or something in here you know Oh yeah, no. 
Just, yeah. That, <laughs> uh, a couple I just wanted to go quick with that are, because I try to put some on here that are maybe more that people can read as a, as a younger audience. The Believers by Robert Arthur is a story that you can find online. It was inspired by an older uh, story that was written uh, kind of as a radio play called Ghost Hunt. And it involves uh, basically... The Believers deals with a radio show host who wants to go into a haunted house on Halloween, and he's going to do this program for his uh, his audience, and he's going to make it all up as he goes along. And actually, Tales from the Crypt took this and made it into an episode. They changed a few things, but it deals with the fact that as he is creating this completely contrived story that he's making up in his head, the psychic energy i guess of all of these listeners imagining the things he's talking about in a war of the world sort of sensibility are causing the are causing some of these things to manifest themselves uh there's movies that have been done since then um the bbc did a really cool thing called ghost watch in the 90s that kind of takes the same concept of uh the power of sustained belief amongst a giant group at one time that they can some you know you know the I believe in fairies sort of scenario, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a really cool story. It's one that would be really great to read aloud. There are some cool audio recordings of it out there. Um, a story that stuck in my head, and I have no idea why. I think because it was they made it into a Tales from the Dark Side episode. It's called the Cuddy Black Sow by Thomas F. Monteleone. Are you familiar with this one at all, Victor? Uh, no, I haven't read this story, but I know uh, Monteleone's uh, repertoire. I've read a couple things. Yeah, I just bought his collection because I saw this and I was like, oh, I remember the story in Tales from the Dark Side. And it's a very creepy story. And Montalini talked about the fact that when he tried to do research like you were talking about, Victor, that, oh, I want to go back and pull some stuff from sort of, uh, you know, some arcane stuff from back of the day that no one's talked about in a long time. Maybe some weird traditions. Mm -hmm. And he had this book called The Golden Bow or something like that. He's like, this is where I go to pull these weird historical artifacts that I can't find. So he found this reference to on Halloween night, witches and protection against witches. And then this reference to something called the Cuddy Black Sow, which is sort of this pig demon walking on its hind legs. And he makes this entire story about a, a little boy's uh, grandmother who is uh, Irish and she is dying. And she is uh, telling him of all the things he needs to do to protect himself during Halloween. So it's a pretty cool, creepy story. Just creepy enough, but I wouldn't recommend it for really young kids. But it's also one of those stories that uh, that you could read to a uh, you know probably kids that are starting to get into horror. Cool. Yeah, that sounds great. I, I definitely want to check that out. I I I've read parts of the Golden Bow, uh, and um, it's it's an anthropological book about. Um, you know, primitive cultures mostly and how they relate together and how things developed in different parts of the world. Um, but uh, that sounds really cool. And I do I do like um, Monte Leone's writing a lot. So um, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. Thanks for the heads up. Yeah, actually, um, I think Fearful Symmetries is the name of the collection. And you can get it on Amazon for like, if you get in the Kindle version again, you get it for $4. I'll put links in the show notes to that too. Um, oh, cool. About to re- I, the, the the one I can't not mention, but I'd like to when Christmas comes around do something with um, ghost stories for Christmas. And maybe if you're if you're game for coming back, Victor, if we haven't completely burned you out here, <laughs> we could do something with with ghost stories. But I for wanted sure. to mention M R James, and I I assume you've read some M R James or, or oh yeah, a fan. And I and you can get a feel. I want to say too, Weird Direction. I don't know if you remember that one, The Ash Tree. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it um. It's a different kind of horror. Did you have a favorite um, James story or, or one that comes to mind? 
did he do whistle and I'll come yes. to you, my lad? Yeah, that uh, that's probably my favorite um, story. But I think much like the Shirley Jackson story we talked about, um, a lot of his stuff is like that. Like it's an implied eerie ending, but it's never quite explained. Um, but that one, uh, whistle and, uh, and I'll come to you is the imagery is particularly, uh, chilling. Um, so I recommend that for just purely for atmosphere and, and just realize that it's, it's early horror. So, um, you know, it's, it's not going to be the polished perfection of, of Stephen King. Um, but it was for its time. So if you want to look at like where a lot of horror roots come from, that's a great story for you. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's a really good one. Um, and then I think, I think that's about what I have. Bill, do you have anything else? No, I mean, the only thing I would ask, uh, is what advice would you give to people trying to break in to the business that you think would be easy for them to kind of get a foot in the door? Oh, I would, I would just say, um, play back the first part of this, of this episode. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you want to write horror, check out dark markets as a first point of interest, see what opportunities are out there and then do what Chuck Palahniuk advised me to do, write in as many genres as you can, see how it goes, see if you enjoy the process and, um, and then get a peer group to help review your stuff and get you used to people critiquing your, cause the, when you start submitting stuff to professional publishers, the first thing they're going to do is go, yeah, I really like this story and we want to include it in our anthology, but could you change A, B, C, D? <laughs> and you have to be ready to roll with that. Um, otherwise it's out. So, <laughs> um, yeah. I was going to say, I know what I wanted to ask you of all the short stories, you know, of, that were made into films. Which one was your favorite? Please say Maximum Overdrive. Please say Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> <laughs> maximum Overdrive. <laughs> you know, the, my favorite part of the story, the, the written story, Maximum Overdrive, is the ending, which is, it's almost like a humorous ending, but it's so, it's such a gut punch where they're, you know, the whole thing is a siege narrative, right? Where these guys are holed up in a gas station or something. And then finally, they hear airplanes. They hear uh, jet planes. And they're like, yeah, we're rescued. And then like the narrator's like, I only pray that there's somebody in them. <laughs> you're like, oh, no. Maybe all the machines have turned. But, but is, there, is there one from King or some other obscure whatever that you thought, you know what? They did it justice. Yeah. I mean, there... I, there it's uh, it's really hard for me to to know off the tip of my brain, but um, there are tons of examples of you know stories that have been served better by their cinematic treatment than the way they are. I was going to say, I was wondering if you liked any of the uh, Corman ones. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, uh, uh, Corman. Sometimes I appreciate the movies better than the than the originals. Um, but I would say Lovecraft is is probably the best example. Like the Stuart Gordon Lovecraft treatments are way better than the original material. They're um, modernized. They honor the original material and still take it much further. Um, and uh, I, I I think that I, I always thought of Lovecraft as an antiquated, you know, yeah, I know this guy's really important to horror history, but, you know, nobody reads him now. Um, but when Stuart Gordon came out with Reanimator and From Beyond, uh, I thought he basically not only made some great... Um, visceral you know f 
grand guignol movies, but he also brought back Lovecraft's relevance as as a writer. He's like, yeah, his stuff still can frighten you, and it's still way over the top, and still mind-blowing. Um, so I think that, that that's probably the best example I can think of. And it's funny because who else would have looked at Lovecraft and said, I vision comedy. You know, <laughs> right. Let's, we're going to make – that's, I think, one of the, the genius of, of Gordon, right? He's like, we're going to make them, and they're going to be kind of funny. And sometimes they're going to be funny in a way that young Frankenstein is funny, you know? Yeah, Or, or exactly. did, you, did you ever read a Lovecraft novel or story and think, oh, I can make a sex scene in this? Probably right. Not. As, as, no, no, he definitely didn't intend that. Like, Lovecraft was a sexual prude. Um, but as a matter of fact, there's barely any women in his stories at all. Um, it's usually just a lone scholar who probably... And is, if they are, they turn out to be old men in women's bodies. That's true. Like, the one, the one, probably the most famous woman turns out to be a guy. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but there is a graphic novel written by uh, Alan Moore a few years ago called Neonomicon. Um, and if you ever wanted to see a Lovecraft story that's true to the source, but also contains lots of wild sex and high, and <laughs> high levels of violence, <laughs> that's the graphic novel for you. Because it's great. It's a great story, but it's definitely not for everyone. It's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty out there. I like more generally. Yeah, Neonomicon. Uh, yeah, I, I I I bumped into a copy of of you know it was it was a comic before it was collected as a graphic novel, um, and I bumped into the first comic at my friend's house, and it, it intrigued me, but I never read it until I came up to here to the Strange High House in the Mist, and then I finally read it as a graphic novel, and it, it really blew my mind. Very cool, and. So finally, I think we're uh, about... Bill, did you have anything else? No, I think we can kind of wrap up. I think up. we've had uh, Victor tied down long enough. He's probably getting hungry. So <laughs> it is about dinner time at your way. So I think uh, we can just wrap it up and thank him very much for being on the show and taking time out of his busy schedule for us. Oh, man. Yeah. Bill, Nathan. Yeah. Thank you, guys. I really... I, I appreciate the, the invite, and I will be happy to uh, support the show however I can. Whenever you want me back as a guest, just say the word. I stand ready to help the Phantom Galaxy. And, yeah, thank you very much. Before we go, I just one more time. You mentioned where you could get the newest story. Uh, can you also tell them where you can get The Sound of Fear, where you can find The Sound of Fear? Oh, sure. Um, the Sound of Fear is available on Amazon.com uh, in either digital or paperback. And um, uh, you just you could just look it up by the, the title, The Sound of Fear, or uh, my name, uh, my full name, Victor H. Rodriguez, and it'll pop up. Or um, you can just go to vhrodriguez.wordpress.com and all the links to my work is in there. And if you're really lazy or busy, you can check out the show notes of this episode. We'll have it linked in there as well uh, for you. And is there anything else on the horizon that we should that you want to let the listeners know about or anything you got going on? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I'm working on, on a novel. Um, you know, I have uh, ADHDI, so I'm a very unlikely candidate to be a writer because for for writing a draft of a novel, you need to concentrate on one thing for a super long amount of time, and that's very hard for me to do. So what I've done to write this is I've broken it up by every other season tearing into it, and then by the end of the season, I stop and put it away and then return to it and do another draft, uh, you know, in two seasons from then. 
So, so it's every other season I'm, I'm writing it. And in the off seasons, <laughs> I'm writing short stories and I have, I have that crow story. I have a sword and sorcery heist and I have, um, a third one that I can't think of right now, but, uh, oh, a, a, a science fiction story about, uh, coming to terms with death. Uh, and they're all going to be making the rounds at uh, whatever publisher will pay the most early next year. So, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds awesome. Well, we look forward to all that. Again, Victor, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, that's, uh, that's pretty much us. It's a Phantom Galaxy. And uh, if, where, if people are looking for you, can they find you? Where can they find you? Other oh, yeah. Other than the bookshelf. Yeah, I would say I'm uh, most... Uh, I mean, you can visit my website that I mentioned earlier, or um, I'm most active on Twitter uh, at it's at Dime Store Caesar. So it's Dime D I M E Store S T O R E, and then Caesar C A E S A R. And um, that's also my in- Instagram address, but I, I hardly am on there. So uh, um, as in the salad, and not the uh, world leader, right? Uh, yeah, they're. The, I think they're the same, aren't they? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you know, <laughs> it could be. But yeah, um, uh, but, but that's where to that's where to find me and and uh, stay in touch. Very cool. And Victor, have a great one. Enjoy uh, the rest of your October. Enjoy Halloween. And I will also mention Victor. We will be hearing from Victor again when we get to our our actual audio horror episode that we have, where we're actually going to have narrated short stories. Victor's Victor's done one for us. That's coming up. Cool. Again, thank you so much, Victor. And this is the Phantom Galaxy signing out. Take care, everyone. Have a great evening. Thanks, guys. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.